Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. Arthur Brooks is back, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, and I dive into the moral mistakes of the Trump administration and the state of American politics. Okay, what's bad for marriage is bad for politics and bad for a country. Brooks has a lot more to say on this, populism, how we bring the country together, and why he's leaving his job right now. Arthur Brooks, thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Always great to be with you. I'm a listener, but I really like being on the show, too, as a speaker. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. So when we talked just before the inauguration, it was January. I remember. It was January of 2017, I think. January of 2017. And even then... I was expressing concern about Mm -hmm. what could come uh, of a Trump presidency. Mm -hmm. And um, you said then, you know, let's, yeah, there's all this stuff out there that gives me pause, but let's give him a chance because Mm -hmm. he is the president of the United States and we should want our president to succeed. Here we are in the middle of 2018. Mm -hmm. Year and a half later, Arthur Brooks, mm-hmm. what you thinking? It's a time of populism, which is inherently problematic for somebody with my philosophy. And why is that? Because populism is ordinarily based on uh, inherently on polarization. It tends to look at the will and the passion of the crowd and get in front of it. Uh, there are people who like populism. There are people who don't. I think it's generally a deleterious phenomenon because I think that leadership is really important and that aspirational leadership, which actually will pull people along in a good direction, is a good thing. So if you have anybody who's a populist leader from Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders, it's going to give me a lot of problems. Philosophically, I think that's it, it, it could weaken the country a whole lot. And you see a lot of these things coming true. Look, we have uh, policies about trade and immigration that I think ultimately going to hurt poor people around the world and going to hurt poor people right here in the United States. But again, I don't get to choose pre- the president. <laughs> I mean, it's like, in a way, what a nightmare, what a dystopian nightmare to have the, you know, the president of the American Enterprise Institute choosing the president every time. I mean, it would be, <laughs> I'm not necessarily saying that that would be the best thing. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know you, Arthur. I would argue if we could have a do-over and you could pick the president, I I, I would give you that shot. Yeah, or just you and me, Jonathan. Let's oh. like, you and me work it out. I mean, and but but here's my point, actually. I'm persuaded that the, these days that Jonathan Arthur, what you're a Democrat, I'm a conservative independent. If we had between now and, and four o'clock this afternoon, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we could solve. And if we were across the table from each other negotiating on something, I would say, I don't want 100%. I want Jonathan to get what he wants too. Right. Because that's the way that ordinary people deal with each other. But that's in the current environment, that's become anathema to both the Democrats and the Republicans, the whole point is these days, if I don't get 100%, I'm a loser and I got zero. And, and it's, a, it's a total victory for the other side. And that's the problem that we have in a highly polarized environment that's partly characterized by populism, but it's mostly characterized by a culture of contempt. Hmm. Culture of contempt. Talk culture more about contempt. that. So <clears throat> we often hear that politics today is characterized by anger, and that's not right. Anger is a hot emotion. You're married, so am I. There is no correlation between anger and divorce. In the social psychological literature, we find... <laughs> True. I, I know, it's, it's crazy, right? I mean, In the year and a half? Absolutely, that well, is you're, correct. You're newlywed, right? Right. I've been, like, I've been married 27 years. The first five were the hardest. <laughs> That's a good... Thank you. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a power struggle, right? And there's a ton of anger. And by the way, I'm married to a Spaniard. 
So it, I've had approximately <laughs> 9,855 major fights. <laughs> anger, I understand. I your head, understand. right, totally. So anger is not correlated with, with divorce. What's correlated with divorce is contempt, which is the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person and treating them as such. That's really, really problematic. There's a guy at the University of Washington in Seattle named John Gottman. He has the, he's the world's leading expert in conjugal uh, failure. He, he talks about divorce and what brings couples back together. He's a hero. He's brought couples back together. I mean, he's, he's the love doctor. And he finds that the number one predictor of couples getting divorced is eye-rolling and sarcasm and mocking. Okay, what's bad for marriage is bad for politics and bad for a country. The biggest problem that we have in the country today is this culture of treating each other with contempt. I mean, imagine if you and I treated each other like the Democrats and Republicans treat each other. It's like Jonathan Capehart. What a lefty. You know, this big left-wing social agenda. Well, you know what? You might be right. And I might be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I want to know first, which is why I want to be your friend. And, and that's the essence of the competition of ideas that makes our society healthier. C contempt is like a cancer. And that's the cancer that's overtaking the country in both parties. I, I love this this idea of, of contempt because that really gets at what I think is what people are dealing with right now. I want to bring you back to something else that you said in the in the first interview, uh, where you we were talking about your book, your terrific book called The Conservative Heart, which is what put you on my my philosophical political map. And it really is a terrific book. And in the interview, uh, the first podcast you did, you said to be a conservative, you should dedicate yourself to helping people who have less power than you. That should be the purpose of the conservative movement, because conservatives are supposed to be dedicated to making people needed, to making people autonomous. And here we are um, with uh, an administration and a president who seems to be flying in the face of that uh, of that notion of yours that I that I just read. How do you as as a as a true conservative and someone who um, cares with the heart, how do you feel about the policies? And I'm specifically thinking about what's happening at the border with um, um, immigration and children being taken from their separated from their parents. How do you, as a conservative, view what's happening in our name? In our name as Americans? As Americans, I don't yeah. like it. I don't like it. I think it's wrong. I think it's aberrant. I think it's a mistake. I think it's a moral mistake, as a matter of fact. And, and you know, when I go back to immigration policy in the United States, I go back years and years and years and years, and I find things that, I, that, that, are, that are fundamentally objectionable. We've made unforced error after unforced error in that debate. And the reason is because fundamentally we take the big error that we make morally, and this is not a conservative or a Republican issue. This is like, a, this is a, this is a human problem is treating people like the other. I have this, this guy I hang out with and I do work with and his name is John Powell. He teaches at the University of California at Berkeley. And he's a, he's an, he's an old school civil rights lawyer, but he's a, he's a complete visionary when he talks about how people are supposed to deal with each other. And he has this one insight that, that it's important for us to remember. He, he says that when we see somebody as the other, we're on the wrong track. Why? Because there's a radical equality of human dignity. That should inform the things that we do. It's, you know, I feel the same way that I, that I did when, when you interviewed me in, in January of 2017. And the, the first time we went out to lunch and every time I've seen you and hung out, I, I believe these are the, the principles that should animate, by the way, not just American conservatism, but American progressivism as well. 
you know, if I do my job, we're going to have more progressive conservatives, people who believe that progress is possible and that you should conserve the things that are virtuous and true and good and change the things that aren't. You know, this is a, a kind of a new era of a flexible ideology, if I can have my way. So when you ask, what do I think about those particular policies from the administration? I don't like them. And and when, when if we have a liberal administration that's doing anything like it, I'm not going to like that either. It's really not dependent on the political party. It has to do with human dignity and, and solidarity and brotherhood. And human dignity, dignity was the word that you said um, during that first interview that was the light bulb moment for me in terms of understanding why people, given everything they heard him say during the campaign, every intemperate, hateful, xenophobic remark he made on the campaign, they still went and voted for him. And it was because he spoke to their their longing or their need for dignity, basically to be seen. Yes, Jonathan, this is why progressives need to listen to this show and listen to you. Because you just made an observation that's fundamentally important and that, 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 that sees through a lot of the political rhetoric that we have today. You just identified a lot of people, millions and millions of people who voted for Donald Trump, not because they're just racists, not just because they're xenophobic, but because they were feeling despair, which is the inverse of dignity. Now, again, whether you think that his policies are going to serve that dignity or not, we have an inherent need to, for, 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 actually, you and I both believe, because we, we share religious beliefs, that, that there we do have inherent dignity. We have, a, have to have a sense of that dignity. And people who are in positions of leadership are responsible to help people have that sense of dignity. The, the competition between conservatives and liberals should be, how are we going to lift people up such that they're treated like assets and not like liabilities? Donald Trump spoke to a lot of people. By the way, Bernie Sanders spoke to a lot of people <clears throat> uh-huh. about the sense of despair that they were feeling and the dignity they could feel. Were they right or wrong? Our listeners can decide that. But one thing that we should all agree on is that we should be warriors for that very same dignity. If we don't like what's going on politically, let's give an alternative to a better sense of dignity that people deserve. So uh, I did. We are coming to you from the Aspen uh, Ideas Festival in in Aspen in Colorado. And I did a panel. um, It was like a series of panels. But David Brooks of the New York Times, columnist of the New York Times, and I kind of got into it at the end of one panel where he was talking about the fact that Donald Trump spoke to a lot of people um, about their economic anxieties and that there were people he believed who voted specifically on economic anxiety and still support him on that and that, you know, the racism and the xenophobia um, and the nativism, you know, it's separate. And the clock ran out. And I said, I'm sorry, I know we're out of time. But I just have to say, after a year and a half of him being president and still denigrating people um, in the way that he does, and specifically, I was thinking of ceding the moral authority of the Oval Office in the wake of Charlottesville that knowing all these things about Donald Trump, the idea that I should separate economic anxiety from what he's saying as president, to me is, I can't get there. Um, I know that if, you know, if Barack Obama were, um, say, supporting Louis Farrakhan, Mm-hmm. People would be saying to me, oh, my God, you've got to denounce him. You've got to separate yourself from him. Like, well, why? Why should I? Because he's speaking to Obama speaking to me on on this level. I have to I I can separate. But 
that wouldn't actually be right because you know me, Arthur. Mm-hmm. If, if Barack Obama supported Louis Farrakhan, I would be writing over and why are you doing this? For sure. But you would also be supportive of Barack Obama's policies at the same time. Why? Because it's impractical for you to, 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 to put those things together. Look, Jonathan, you have to separate out the, the sociological, the, the xenophobic, the things that you dislike about his, his rhetoric with respect to othering people and the economic concerns. Why? Because you want to win the country and you're not going to win the country if you say anybody who supports him, notwithstanding the economic concerns that they have, is a racist. But Arthur, it's more than othering. It'd be one thing if it were just rhetoric. But it's that rhetoric is turning into policy. No, I got and, it, and, and so that And so that's why, I, that's why I'm thinking, like, how... You're separate. He's separating children from their parents. No, at the I got border. it. But there's no. There, we're talking not about him. We're talking about the people who voted for him. And you Correct. want them. You want them for your movement because you're a movement man. Because you're a you're a visionary that has a better future in your mind's eye. I know you I'm are an American. No, no, it's not just that. You're also a movement guy. And if you want to build your movement, it's not good enough to say all the people who supported a particular candidate are are irredeemable deplorable racists. Uh, now, I didn't say irredeemable or deplorable. I don't but put what those... you're saying is if you're going to put those two things together, the hateful things that you don't like from the president and the economic concerns that people said that, they, that the reason that they voted for him, if you can't pull those two things apart, then you're not going to be in a position to go to those people and say, I see you as a better person than this, and I have a better vision for America than that, and we are all brothers. I have a, I have a better vision for what is actually going to address your economic concerns, and, and here's dessert after that dinner, you can love your neighbor as well, because that's the vision that we need for this country. But our, I mean, that's a that's a great vision, but we're not there. It's but but Jonathan, your job is to have that vision, man. No, I and mine I, too. Because if you don't have the vision, who's going to have it? Well, I have the vision. You have the vision, Arthur. But aren't there days, especially in in the last couple of months, where you wake up and you're like, the the vision is disappearing, the dream is disappearing, the idea of America is disappearing. No, I don't feel it. Let me tell you what I feel. I see a perturbation of the status quo for, for, for the first time. That means that we've, we've shaken it up, man. That's word. an economist, so forgive me. <laughs> perturbation. Yeah, yeah, I know. We talked that way. So um, the, the status quo has been shaken up. Why is that important? Because we need to have a big conversation. we got to get it all on the table. Look, you and I are having two conversations on your podcast. Do you think that, you know, five years ago we'd be having these conversations? We're talking about a better vision for America. This incredible aspirational opportunity. This is our moment. This is the moment for Jonathan and Arthur together to look at a better future for this country and to disagree honestly based on the moral consensus of pushing opportunity to the people who need it the most. It's very hard to have that conversation until everything gets shaken up. This is the best time for us. This is the best time in American history if we make it so. So I wake up every day and I say, oh, it's another adventure. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's it may sound crazy and I know it's easy to be discouraged. But, you know, this is how social change happens. It's when something, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, people talk about these, these pivotal moments in their lives after they've had a great failure. You know, after they've had something that's been really, really painful. 
So what, what I what I would urge to my my liberal brothers and sisters, and by the way, I come from a liberal family, and and you know I'm talking about literally my family. Oh here. yeah, no, go to the first episode. He, Arthur talks all about his his liberal upbringing. Yeah, I mean this is the opportunity to to have a new conversation about what the vision actually is. But 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 you know what the big mistake is going to make on the left is going rail to rail. If you don't like Donald Trump, don't do a liberal version of Donald Trump. Don't vilify your neighbors. Don't say that to be with me you have to have pure and hate your neighbor say look all are welcome all are welcome let's just and furthermore i refuse to be a zero-sum game politician i refuse to say that if i don't get 100 percent, i'm getting zero change it up if you don't like what the president is doing do do something else that actually models the virtuous behavior that you want to see that can be the new vision and you know what i i actually when you put it that way i do see that um, Stacey Abrams, the candidate, the Democrat now Democratic nominee for governor in Georgia, is someone who speaks in that way. Uh, Mayor Gillum of Andrew Gillum of Tallahassee, who's running for the Democratic nomination for governor in Florida, he speaks in this way of going to where people don't expect to see you, where it might be Trump country, but they're going there to say, I hear you, you're probably not going to vote for me. But if you do vote for me, or even if you don't vote for me, here's what I'm going to do, because we are all in this together. Totally, so, totally. so you've given me a ray of hope. But beyond that, look, let me talk to the conservatives here for a second, too, because oh, yeah, I, I know lots of good, whole, uh, wholesome right wingers that listen to you because you've got a great podcast. This the same thing is true. If you're discouraged about what's going on in this country for any reason, whether you voted for Trump or not, you can actually build a better future by using the same virtues that we're talking about here that I've just recommended to liberals. Look, a lot of conser- uh, uh, progressives are going to say, Arthur Brooks is giving me advice, give me a break. But a lot of conservatives might. And, and the point of it is, if you don't think that we're going in the right desi- direction, if you don't think we're making progress, if you don't think that things are actually getting better, what should the conservative movement be doing? And it should be doing exactly what you said. Go where you're not invited and say what they don't expect. Go to an NAACP meeting and say, look, I know some of you might leave thinking I'm wrong and maybe that I'm crazy, but none of you is going to leave tonight thinking I don't care about you and your family and be sincere in the effort to make it so. And that's the key, sincere. Because yeah. I can, I'm glad you use NAACP because, you know, we black folks are a, are a skeptical lot, especially when someone who's never been here before shows up and starts saying all these good things. Yeah, yeah. But, but you're not skeptical of me. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, look, I know where you're coming from. I Like I've said before, I've read your book. So, but there are a lot of people who go to other communities that go to the black community they say these things and then it's not backed up by anything Oh, yeah. I mean, you you can basically just do propaganda, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people who do this all the time. They, they go someplace where they're not invited or welcome, and they say things that people don't expect, but it is just rhetoric. I mean, you have to make it true. By the way, one of the things that I recommend to politicians is go to that place and make it sticky by going five more times. And that is that actually has got some power behind it. It's like, golly, that guy keeps showing he up. Keeps showing you know, up. what's the dealio? Mm-hmm. You know, he could be someplace else. He could be firing up his base. He could be running a rally of depending on what community you belong to, of, of hard left people or hard right people. But keep showing up. And, and, and by the way, listen, <laughs> imagine that. It's crazy, isn't it? But, but we're talking about these, these basic 
forms of political communication that we seem to have forgotten. Now, the reason I'm optimistic is because I see more and more young people, both Democrats and Republicans, that they think they're 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 discovering some new thing by, you know, it's like, yeah, I got this new concept rolling around my head. It's called loving my enemies. Crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's the gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is as old as the hills. By the way, the title of my next book coming out in March. Old as the hills. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. <laughs> no, it's if I invented this. You know, I'm not immune from these from these old fangled concepts either. But look, but this is our moment to get back to this. This is a time where we can join hands and say, you know, I don't want the people who disagree with me to go away empty-handed because I want enduring victories. Look, what, as a practical matter, what could we avoid? Right now, we're in a period where, where poor people's health care is a ping-pong match. Mm-hmm. The Democrats come into office, and it changes. And then the Republicans come into office, and it changes. And guess what? Newsflash. The Democrats are going to control all the real estate in Washington once again. Why? Because they always do sooner or later, and then the Republicans are going to take over again after that. Until we come to some enduring sense of how poor people should be able to have health care in this country, because that's a, it's idiotic that it keeps changing, and it's idiotic that we don't have a system that can actually serve people the margins of society. It's a, an indictment of our moral fiber, in my view. And again, I'm not speaking for single-payer health care or for that matter, even for Obamacare. I'm a conservative after all. But I know what I hate the most is it changing for the bottom 20% of the income distribution. Actually, it's the second 20%. It's 20 to 40. People who are not on Medicaid, but, 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 they ha- but they can't get anything through the workplace. They're working poor. Until we get away from this mentality that we can't come to any sort of flexibility, any sort of compromise, we're going to be playing ping pong with these people's health care. And, and it goes down the line with policies. You know who always gets hurt? Poor people. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who always get hurt. You mean the, the, the lucky people, the, 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 the people who have never been on the margins of society, the, the Jonathans and Arthurs, quite frankly. We're always going to have health care. We're always going to be fine. But we're leaders. Yeah, and so for that. For totally. Yeah. And, and, but, but we have a responsibility to make sure that people at the margins have greater care and greater respect. And that's why a society where we understand each other is so critically important. You know, Reverend William Barber um, is a, has been a guest on the podcast. And he said something that was, he said a lot of things that were interesting. But he said this, and it was your use of the word poverty that um, reminded me of this. He said, for the last 40 years, we've been basically eradicated the word poverty from political discourse while poverty is growing. Yeah, so po- it's a very it's a very strange thing and and I think that we should mutually regret that for a bunch of reasons. Number one is that I, I understand the context in which you said that, which was we don't want to talk about something difficult that we don't want to deal with. And so we just don't talk about it. We don't talk about poverty. But there's another side of it, too, that I want people to join me in regretting, which is that we spent $23 trillion since 1965, and the poverty rate has gone from about 15% of the population to about 13.5% of the population. Now, poverty has become more bearable, thank God. You know, it's actually the, the case that people don't have a generally in poverty have a calorie deficit in this country. But, but here's the scandal. Poverty in this country has not become more escapable. And the essence of human dignity is earned success, is self-sufficiency, is the ability to support yourself and your family, is to be needed in your community and needed in your economy. One of the reasons that on the, not just the right, but also the left, that we don't want to have these conversations about poverty is because, quite frankly, we haven't cracked this problem even with $23 trillion. And that is a, that's the real scandal. You are leaving. Well, you're, the, you're the president of the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute. Yeah, I'm leaving. And I fired myself. You're you're leaving. How long were you at AEI? Ten years. And well, 
it's Washington. It's a think tank. You could be there until you've got the walker with the tennis balls at the end. Why leave after such a relatively, by Washington think tank standards, a short period of time? You know, it's. I appreciate you asking that question. Um, I, I made a commitment when I came to D.C., uh, I, I was teaching social enterprises. I was, I'm a college professor by, you know, sort of by background, by temperament. And, and I used to teach social enterprise and nonprofit leadership. And I had these data. And these data showed that a social enterprise, if you're successful, you need to be there 10 years to instantiate your vision. But if you're there longer, you, you, you debilitate the organization by making it too hard to replace you, where too many people can't re- remember what it was like before you. But, but your own uh, success starts to become attenuated. You get weaker because you get it gets easier in this way you know hmm. leadership is about serving an institution it's not about an institution serving a leader and anytime somebody says i'm going to run this organization until i'm not having fun anymore has said this organization exists to serve me and that's a mistake look i i this is a process of discernment and i, I had written this which is kind of inconvenient because by the time 10 years came around i thought ah i think i meant 15 years when i wrote that but <laughs> But but the truth of the matter is that that it is correct that these time limits really have teeth. And I, and I prayed about it for a long time. And through a process of discernment, I said, I get to practice what I preach. It's a matter of basic ethics. And so I said, I'm stepping back. We're in the process of finding a new president. And I got to say, I'm, I'm really at peace. I, I, I don't have a job. <laughs> well, that's not true. I mean, you you will potentially be unemployed, but it's not like you're go- you're not going to have anything to do. Um, you're getting into this game, this yeah. podcast game. Yes, indeed. It's it, and um, by the time this airs, it will have, your first episode will have already will have already run. What's the name of the podcast, and what what are you doing, Arthur? Okay, so this podcast, my competition. Am I have to no, worry? Com- no, no, this is not a substitute. This is a compliment to Jonathan K. Part. This is called the Arthur Brooks Show. You, you can tell we, we hired Sachi and Sachi to figure that one out. <laughs> I mean, it's genius. How I many know. focus groups did, did it take know, to come know, up with I know, that I know, name, I know. And you know, it's like the, the, the yeah. Um, I always hated the name Arthur, by the way, but still, now it's in the name of the podcast. It's uh, It sounds like I'm a hundred year old man, right? <laughs> by the way, I married a girl named Esther. Uh-huh. And we, we the first place we lived in the United States after we immigrated, after we lived in Spain for a long time, was Boca Raton, Florida. Arthur and Esther Brooks and Boca Raton Flores. Fantastic, isn't it? It's just, it's like we were getting, you know. People thought you were like 80 years yeah, yeah, old. Yeah, they were telemarketing me for funeral plots and, you know, <laughs> Medigap insurance. Anyway, I'm off the subject. The Arthur Brooks show, uh, it, it, it will air on July 12th. And by the time people are listening to this, it will have already aired on July 12th. My purpose on that show is the same as my mission for the rest of my life, which is to build a movement to lift people up and bring them together. So the first season is going to be about how to disagree how to disagree, not less, because I love competition. I think competition is the essence of, of bringing about excellence. And competition of ideas is also known as disagreement. The problem is not disagreeing too much. It's not disagreeing right. Competition requires rules of the road and basic morality, and so does disagreement. So the whole first, the whole first season has got social psychologists on how to disagree with each other. It's got people who run social movements who are in, just in the fray. I've got ordinary people who disagree who are like conservatives in liberal families and liberals and conservative families. Oh, I've got over Thanksgiving, ta- <laughs> Thanksgiving totally. dinner. That, that's what's about Thanksgiving table. Ah. As a matter of fact, I have people who are, who are just best friends and, and, and who are just driven by the, the, the election of Donald Trump and how they're coping with it. So they can continue to love each other. It's a, it's something that's really opened my eyes to the, you know, 
how I want to disagree with people. And it's, this, this podcast is going to be dedicated to answering the questions that I want to answer and sharing this information with my brothers and sisters. Wait, the way you're talking, are all these episodes already done? No, the oh, first. Okay. So oh, we've got God. the first four in the can, and we've got four more coming out for the first ep- for the first season, which is the first ep- eight episodes. It's on Vox Media, mm-hmm. um, and they're 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 fantastic. I mean, they're high production values. There's a lot of uh, we've got a good composer is doing the work. Oh my God, you got an original score? I got an original score. Actually, well, it's, it's a live orchestra. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's not, it's are not, you performing? Because you know, you're you're a musician. Yeah, yeah. I are was. you perform? Was but I mean, come yeah, on, yeah, once yeah. musician, always musician. <laughs> in my you, heart. You're not for, you're not performing no. in your own no, no, theme no, music. No, no, no. It's like you don't need a French horn running the you know the the the, <laughs> the, the, the soundtrack for a podcast. That would be that. That's that's dystopian, man. <laughs> it's no good. <laughs> but it's going to uh, be fun. Right. And and I would you know. But, but one of the things that I would like to do with this is to have conservatives and liberals interacting with it and listening to it. And and my end goal is the same as yours, Jonathan, which is building a better culture of people who can understand each other and who don't necessarily agree but can love each other nonetheless let me uh close by asking you this this last arthur brooksian i think question and that is can the can the nation survive without moral leadership from the president of the united states the answer is we don't know and that's a question that has been outstanding for a long time. So 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 let me rephrase my answer, which is that ordinarily this country is so strong that we go through periods of questioning and we go through periods in which part of the country says we have strong moral leadership and the other part of the country says we have no moral leadership. It's not the first time that's happened. I mean, the whole 19th century was like this. And thank God we have stronger institutions in the press and in the courts and the state and local governments such that we don't end brother fighting brother like in the 19th century. So I'm optimistic because I actually see people stepping up in communities to express their values. I see a lot of people who believe that we ha- we do have strong moral leadership in this country. And I see people like you who say, no, 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 that's completely wrong. Bring that on. Why? What encourages me is the question. Not the answer. The question is, what do we do about moral leadership? And when people all over this country are asking what we do about moral leadership instead of ignoring that topic, we have a fighting chance of progressing in this country and, and, and creating and instantiating a vision that we can all believe in. Arthur Brooks, still president of the American Enterprise Institute, soon to be the host of the Arthur Brooks Show on Vox Media Podcast. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Jonathan. I love it being with you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart J.